wrestler and then what happened it's a wrestler now <laughs> you're just a wrestler <laughs> you never you were never that fat at any one point no i know but i mean it was just that like you remember i mean it was like i don't know what happened do you still smoke no i quit after uh ted's ted's funeral or ted's wedding i don't know if that's a genuine freudian slip or you're just saying that in defiance out of love i'm sure i'm not spilling the beans but vince is getting married soon oh i know yeah, no man. he sent me a text he's like Drop the prop. And I was like, drop the prop. It's like, it's like proposition eight. Like, what's going on? Like, what did you drop? Like, pick it up. And then I was like, asking Emily. She's like, what? He's getting married. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, do you drop a prop? But they were dating for five years or something. So I feel like Ed and uh, Sammy, uh, Vince and Aaron were. Ed and Sammy. <laughs> yeah. Nah, that, that name doesn't fit them. I always think Aaron could be also an Ed. She was a dude. Maybe not. I mean, uh, why? <laughs> you know more than me. Just like red hair. I, mean, I don't know. What the fuck are you talking about? Like the red hair makes you think of like an Ed. Okay. <laughs> but um, let's do this interview, Dan. This is it. This is you know this is the beginning. I can use some of this actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of thing. So seriously, how are you? What are you up to? I'm good. Like. Yeah, I'm pretty busy because I don't know, like if you, like at work, you know, at Shot, where we're like we're publishing stuff. We like launched a new digital publishing platform. This is all your brainchild, right? Yeah, I mean, it was my idea I had when I, I literally was like jogging, like last spring, and I was and I had this idea of, um, I mean, because I was kind of like just you know burnt out with like work or whatever, and I was kind of like, okay, I, I need to do something that makes it more interesting to wake up to, and so I was like you know, what's even interesting about publishing in the first place. And I, I think I had this idea of, uh, like the historical aspect of like, Oh, it documents like a period in music in actually a really concrete way. There's like lots of printed music and published music that's completely forgotten. And I have like tons of old like manuscripts and shit of like really no name composers and no name publications and like a Ned Rohrm interview and like a dumb piece he wrote in like a little like piano magazine publication, you know, 1982. It's all kind of like awful, but like... The music's awful, the interview is awful. I mean, the whole, the... the whole situation's just like awful in some way, you know. But in some way, it's kind of equal to like any any situation you'd be in. It's just like, oh yeah, this is like totally like normal. It's like him, like his headshot, like he's wearing like a uh, turtleneck and like looks super like... Yeah, except, except you look at it now and you're like, oh... Life is always boring, and it's well, always it was boring, and yeah, it's, it's going o- to be boring. It's, and it's boring ridic- right now. It's always ridiculous, you know, and like yeah. it's always ridiculous. And then time goes on, and like a couple things like pop out as like the things that define the era. And it's history is always like super political and problematic. But so I was like, oh, okay, like so publishing in some way almost is like journalism in some way, where it kind of like captures the times, but in its own method, like through the way it produces its archive or whatever. So. I was like, oh, what if we were to uh, publish a lot more music? Because right now, you know, the models like kind of like win a lot of awards, get kind of famous, then write good orchestral music and then get commissions. And like that's one route or the other route is like become a teacher. And those are then there's some in between stuff. But making your life living as a composer, I think, is pretty in America. At least it's like super stratified way to do it. And and also being published is pretty stratified too. And like who's getting published. So anyways, I thought, well, what if, 
nowadays it seems like I'm like self-published. Everybody I know is like self-published and we actually produce music that looks published already without a publisher. So I, so the idea was like, what if the, the traditional publisher role was to, to provide like a platform for self-published composers to kind of like put their works into like one place, then the publisher almost acts as like the business transaction and the composers though still do their own like composing in their own lives, but they're using basically the administrative arm of like a traditional publisher. Yeah, if you go to, if you go to Sweden or like Finland and I, I forget which other Nordic countries, mm-hmm. the state actually acts as that. Where right, it's right. like you're published by Piano's like that too. Yeah. But that right. doesn't happen here. There's no right. centralized, you know, publisher. Right. So I'm trying to basically be like the Swedish government, I think, in a way. But no, it's kind of true. It's like the idea I had was like, oh, like dig- through digital publishing, you could basically publish tons of stuff because there's no production cost. So basically that makes it uh, virtually like you could do a lot more, you know, because if you say you have a 50 page book that you say it was in your manuscript, handwritten manuscript, say it's a song book, 50 pages of songs, a song cycle. And that was to be published. You would, it would cost at least like five grand or so to just engrave the music. I mean, depending on how hard it is, but about five grand just to engrave it. And then probably printing it would be, you're going to at least spend about 2000 bucks. It, you know, g- given everything, it's going to be $8,000 to basically make this book that maybe will sell for $25 a book. And if you do the math, it's going to take a long time to even just cover that cost. Do you count on that, though? Do you, do, do you say if it's not worth it if we can't make our money back in two years? Yeah, in some way, I think it's not worth it to put things in mass print if it can't like cover its own production costs. But that's why I think the digital publishing is a lot more interesting because the, the method of pro- producing is totally different because so composers produce their own scores and then essentially you're just hosting the, the content so how do you vet people how do you choose who you want to do because normally the th- at least a factor that would go into the business decision is right. oh, we're going to be able to cover our costs but how do you do it if it doesn't cost anything i think i like this yeah yeah i know i think there's people I think, will download this i think it, it's like yeah there's like two directions like one is towards like What's the like gain either financially over a, sh- a short period of time or a long period of time? And a lot of publishing is the old model is only one percent of your catalog makes the money. You know, the Rhapsody in Blue or the you know for us it's uh, Carmina Barana. I th- I'm, I swear that probably pays for the whole operation just in its world. Carmina Barana. Yeah, but anyway, so that so the traditional model would be having one work in your catalog or like a group of works that are the big money makers, and then a lot of stuff doesn't get any attention in some way and it never will and so the model is always like very like future looking like oh in the future we're hoping these things that we believe in now will become the thing now i don't think that's a a a good a good model and so this model is way more temporary you're going to basically it allows us to come in contact with a a a huge group of new composers because right now i mean like if you look at who's published in america it's really limited probably 20 30 composers that are major publishing houses are publishing them so this gives us the opportunity to like have like some sort of relationship with a whole like generation of composers and then i think if some of those composers really start going in a direction that look good for like the publishing like company's point of view then it's like oh let's like increase the relationship or because this digital format is so cheap you can just cast the net out yeah wider you know and then after a while you can be like oh you know this fish is still around right well also i think and then for myself though i think there's a lot of problems with the way uh like the contemporary 
music reality is for all of us? Because when I, I mean, you, you have to experience this, on, probably not as much maybe in Europe, but uh, when you were in, over at Yale or whatever, I don't know at what point I was in school where they were like, oh, if you want to be a composer, you also need to do your own like public relations or you have to be like into PR or you have to like care about these things, your headshot, all this stuff. I mean, actually, I was really shocked when I had my music or business and music class and it was like, your headshot is really important. I was just like, who cares about your, your fucking headshot? You know, but that's actually now I'm like, oh, yeah, that's so like what the reality is, because there's this whole like entertainment industry aspect to it, all this stuff. On some level, I'm so not interested in like the public relations industry. And I mean, it basically just markets shit. I mean, you can definitely look at what gets covered in the press and be like, OK, a lot of shit. But that being said, um, I look at like composers like Feldman or yeah, Feldman's actually a great example because I actually don't think if he was alive today, a publisher would even look at him. You know, they'd be like, oh, this guy out in Brooklyn who writes these quiet pieces, he's kind of fat and awkward or not awkward, but the guy wasn't wasn't like tweeting like he lived in Buffalo and he was. I mean, whoever discovered Feldman was clearly it was it was UE well, London. I I was an American. Okay, but company. I I agree with that. But don't over romanticize it and think that Feldman wasn't concerned about PR and stuff. I mean, he has a lot of writings out there. Oh yeah, totally. Oh yeah, and yeah. He did, I mean, he, he was he, a public he, person. Yeah, and surely. he did he did a radio. I uh, used to. I mean, those radio happenings with Cage. Even you could even say Cage himself used to appear on game shows. Yeah, you know. And now, if now if someone who maybe you didn't aesthetically agree with was uh, on a game show, on a game show, you'd be like, Bullshit. look at this douchebag on this game. I don't. Show. They don't He's even shameless. They don't even have to go on a game show to be a douchebag. That's. A th- I actually think. Well, I think the difference now is I think there's a super aggressive breed of there's a super, there's an incredibly aggressive direction that's perpetually being stronger more validated by like money attention like this like system of rewards and so if, if, if anything, i think that's a newer phenomenon yeah if, any, the, if, any, if anything you can't say that may, maybe it is stronger and because of that it, it does affect style because people look at the model of what works and also just what is happening because what is getting filtered they don't even they don't at first when they're developing a style they don't even realize that they're looking at something that's filtered they just think oh this is what it is mm-hmm. in, instead of going through a pr machine and i think you can say that that is stronger even to go back to like okay so cage appeared on his game show but his music didn't change to be to make the people on that game show happy no yeah no and i mean i think in some way, I'm not at like war with the PR industry or the PR machine and like the people that benefit from that. But I think what I concretely could contribute from working in a publishing industry was to make a, a situation or the conditions for different kinds of composers who normally maybe wouldn't have been looked at by a traditional publisher actually now be have a higher exposure. People could find their music more easily because it was you know in a uh, more kind of filtered site because it's through a traditional publisher you've been working at this publishing house for six years six years mm-hmm. wow you know like old style okay since you're the only one with a full-time job mm-hmm. how do you balance what's your balance I wake up early. I like to write in the morning and I compose in the morning and I got to fit it in obviously around my um, schedule. But the one good thing about looking at music all day long for your job is that when you look at your own music, it's it's almost as if I automatically have I, I just know 
what's bullshit. And so I thoroughly believe a score that looks interesting is interesting. So I almost just try to imagine what my score looks like. And if I can see it in my head, then I know I have a good like piece. Do you visualize symbols on a page? Uh, yeah, kind of vaguely. Like if I can see what it's like, how it like looks like a page of it looks. Once it has like a look and a feeling, I know the notes are kind of secondary or something. Really? Mm-hmm. I think Feldman was like that too. He like knew there was a certain look a score had to have and then it was, it was right. I'm not saying it's about like, oh, if it looks good, it sounds good. But I think there's a particular feeling to a score that looks good. It's like looks good feels this certain way. There's a certain feeling of like, I know it's good. Or, or you can do it backwards and say, like, you look at a score and say, I can tell, like, it's not, like, it's not good. It doesn't sound good. And usually it doesn't sound good. Because it's sloppy or it's just because it's... I think it's because it's just straight up boring. Like, I think most... I, honestly, I think music's... I'm pretty, like, over music at this point. I think it's really, like, empty, like, gestures or something people are always making in, in music they write. And it's it's, like, I always hear quotation marks with almost everything I, every, everything I hear. And I, I hear a lot of pieces like every day. And I think to find like the thing that's original, I think in a composer's like work, like Fellman or like cage is it's almost, I, I don't want to say the word magical, but it almost is in a, like what I sense about it is not musical in my mind. It's like a feeling that's like, Oh, it's this feeling. It's like the good feeling, you know, but you can get that from just looking at it. Mm-hmm. Usually. Yeah. Just feels like you're working backwards. I guess you have to since you work in publishing, which means you're in the pieces of paper business, not the not the creation of sound business. Right. Yeah. But as a composer, you're in the creation of sound business. I would totally disagree. I'd say like composers basically create conditions for sounds to happen. You sound like a uh conservative economist. I am. <laughs> I mean I I think I am. Um I think we don't think enough about the conditional aspect of what like a score is. Like when you sit down to play a Beethoven work, there's a thousand preconditions already in the piece. It's like the precondition that you have this level of technique that you can read, you can read this kind of coding, this, the way that classical music wants to have its phrases, the way it's form and content are in conflict. Um, the way the years you bo- spent in school. Yeah. All these, all these know? things. And I would say when you go into a Beethoven piece, there's, there's conditions and, and they're bodily conditions too. Cause when you play a Beethoven piece, you and you you've had this experience it feels like you're playing beethoven you had there's like a beethoven physical feeling like oh the beethoven feeling i almost want to say that's not anything about sound there's like i think sound is like an illusion or it's too it's too vague i think there's a physical feeling to your body playing beethoven the same way bach has a really particular feeling and so these feelings that compose these particular feelings almost like singular feelings are what the score also has in it is this like singular feeling of it being like from this like composer or, or or this thing that stands out to you. And so I think scores are, they set the conditions for a certain like reality to happen. But you can change the font. You can change, you can t- change the page turns. Mm-hmm. You can change, you can, com- you can completely fuck with the layout. Mm-hmm. And as long as the symbols are organized in a certain way, it's going to essentially be the same. Yes. And I think no too. I mean, but I feel like that, that art, that position is there's like two directions happening. One is saying there is an ideal reality here that no matter how we make the appearance, there's this ideal musical reality that we could have one note per page and really have like, you know, 
8,000 page Beethoven sonata because we only did one note per page. And idealistically speaking, if you played the score exactly how it's written correctly, it would still sound like the Beethoven sonata. And then there is another way that I would say it didn't, it didn't go into like, the, it didn't do that. And it, there was like a range of like what it could be, kind of like quantum physics or something. There was like, this is a statistical range of where, what the reality of its notation was going to be. And there's probably better ways within that statistical range to have it communicate the idea more. And actually, I think Feldman's uh, pieces becoming engraved is an interesting example because you can look at his older works that where he had the, the single piece of paper and he made a grid and, you know, the, the, the size of the paper and is really important to the form of the piece in a lot of ways. It was yeah. like, that's why I really like Feldman too. It's like, he's like the pen you use is really important. And he kind of really brought it down to like reality. Cause I'm like more concerned with pens than I am like notate than composing. Like I can't, if I find a great pen, I like, know I'll be a great composer or really great paper. Like I can't see all the paper. I can't even find the piece I want to write because I can't find the paper size I want to write it on. All those things, I think, are factors in writing a work. They're factors, but you're really putting, I don't know, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I'm old school, but, but you're putting a degree of emphasis on it that I think is a little, well, it's, it's is a little, is a little extreme. Yeah, it's, you know? it's very extreme. And I think if you were to see like a Feldman work that's been engraved maybe electronically, pe- may, they may- did a whole new layout on it. Yeah. And you can still learn the works that way they sound like it, but then if you see the original manuscript, all of a sudden you're like, oh, that feels more like what it should have been. Yeah, that might also be a little bit of a placebo effect. Well, I don't know why his publisher, UE, didn't publish them in the format, or Peters did. Peters published his works with the same layout, So, but UE didn't. And I think the Peters publications of Feldman's works are infinitely better and i think when somebody because it threatens what a composer does to give a crap that much about the notation in some way you want the ideality of the idea to like exist into the future where it's like dan's third symphony it doesn't matter which version of it what kind of graving somebody did in finale blah 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 it doesn't matter dan's third symphony is like a this thing and if you start worrying about pens and papers, I think that actually threatens that like materiality in some way threatens the ideality of your greatness. All of a sudden you're like, oh, I guess it really mattered like what color socks I wore that day. It was that particular, that physical. So I think there's just, like a threat to what composers do because the fact that we even write it down means like we're hoping for this like future. I've seen enough scores at this point. I don't think composers even, they take for granted their active notation as if it's like oh yeah i'm just like it's more important i get to the sound of what i'm going for than how it's notated and i I just don't agree well they should be closely married to each other yeah or you should want the look of your music to look as original as you'd want it to sound if you just want to be another like like whatever composer then your scores should also look like whatever but i think that they both need to there's like a certain feeling that you should be going for if you're going to be even writing music I see so many generic scores, you know, like really generic. It's like, oh yeah, it's that style. Well, it's a, they open, they open finale. Yeah, and they copied and pasted, and you know. yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They they copied and pasted when it was time for the thing to come back, and then uh, you know, then they print it out. They get the <laughs> clear plastic front, black the black, the black back, and uh, they do the comb binding, and then they send it to you, and then you go, wow, save the trees. Yeah. Don't send it. Yeah. You know, I just think, no, I think it's just having a certain feeling 
I, I think any great art, or great art. I'm not calling myself a great artist, but I think any great artist will have a feeling for like stuff that looks good or feels good. Like I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. know. I mean, I'm super obsessed with you know, I'm super obsessed with format. Yeah, I think you, you I, still use a stencil. I did a bunch of stuff by hand. Mm-hmm. The problem is, is that pragmatism creeps in, and I mean, I did those while I was in school, which meant I had class, and then I had a lot of free time on my hands, mm-hmm. and. It could have taken me two weeks mm-hmm. to do that by a computer. Yeah. Um, I think it took me two months. And it was two months of – it wasn't like an hour. It wasn't like, oh, I did it for a couple hours today. You know, I'll pick it up tomorrow. It's like what I did for two months. And there was something amazingly zen about that. And yeah. I kind of I, I kind of – because I had composed it. And then while I was doing it by hand, I actually learned the piece. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's funny that as I was as I was doing it, I realized what I didn't like about it, mm-hmm. but then it was too late because I'd already done it by hand. Mm-hmm. And so I was—I remember just right, just working on this one section of music, and then I was like, "I don't like what I did ten pages ago," mm-hmm. but I couldn't change it because it was already, yeah, you know, it was, it was, yeah, I couldn't, was, yeah. It was your thread or your yeah. blanket, yeah, yeah, your weird scarf you made, yeah, no, exactly, you have, yeah. You have to wear it, yeah. I think that's interesting. I, I mean, personally, I think that's really rewarding too. I would, you know, it's great, and I learned. It's like I, you raising know, a child on accident. Or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I also, yeah, I also learned about my own head. It is a type of. It's so methodical that it is. It it does it does turn into like meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's maybe what I'm looking. Maybe that's what I'm looking to achieve. I mean, the last piece I wrote, I I, I think I try to find the look of the piece, and then, I mean, I don't always do this, but th- this is lately what I've been trying to do is find the look. And then once I know the look, I just literally like write it out, and that I and it's relaxing too because then I, then I know what I'm already trying to do. But who you know like somebody who writes who has really nice looking scores but has awful music, and you can almost tell is uh, like George Crumb. I think well also he finds the most complicated way to notate the dumbest ideas. He doesn't even have ideas; they're just empty theatrical gestures. I don't mean something looking good in the way that his scores look good. It's more that just things having their own feel to it. Yeah, that's, I guess that's what I'm like writing now. But also, I also sometimes, um, like when I'm writing at the piano, though, I'm, I, I don't think I think that way. Like I'm more interested in like the way my body feels or something when I'm at the piano. But I have no concept of like other instruments or something. Than the piano. Right. Physically speaking. That's not true at all. It's like you fucking have a, you know, a guitar here and a cello here. And I know that you spent a lot of time sucking at those things just to get the feel of what it is to play it. Yeah. Well, I mean, remember when I was doing like Cambrian? Yeah. And actually, that was a, a, a really uh, important. I think like when I wrote Cambrian, I, I, Cambrian, I think that was actually like a turning point in my like writing. I think everybody, I think everybody thinks that. Yeah. Who knows you? Yeah. And I think because before I could write a piece on a certain like facility of like knowing how instruments work, in a kind of like knowing sort of way and I, I knew how things worked and in some way I think I was into the idea of a, being a composer in, in a more proper way before I wrote that piece where I was like composers put together sounds by like studying these sort of scores and they put things together and they kind of know what works they get surprised it was a, it was actually a really uh, tempered maybe a really healthy way of writing or something you know it's what you're taught I mean you're taught you're taught these things in the abstract it, it, it's like studying traffic rules but never driving a car. Yeah. 
what was cool about writing, I think everybody has this experience, is that when you are a composer, you write a piece, and there's such a awkward investment in composing. I feel if it's like, especially as like a young guy, I, I don't even know what probably for women it's totally crazy, but you're like go through puberty. Uh, you maybe like kiss a girl for the first time and get a hand job. And then like you write your first piece and like hear it done, you know, in some like order that happens. And I think what what's, what's cool about when you first time you hear your own music is you see how you wrote this thing down. And then there's this total physical, real, it was reality that happens. It's so real. It's like, Oh my God, I wrote this string quartet. And now these four people are like playing the notes and actually in some way it's incredibly jarring too. I think for me, at least it was like, Jesus Christ, that's what I wrote. It's like when you do five P's, I remember that. I remember that moment. Yeah. Five fortes. It's like, you know, it wasn't just an idea anymore of like four P's. It's really quiet. It's like really quiet. It's like, Oh, maybe it's only two P's, you know, because it's really quiet. Anyways. Yeah. That feeling of the first time it's really jarring. And so I think fundamentally there's something really jarring about sound to begin with. It's like fundamentally violent and annoying. And I think it's really fun when you're younger to know that you can control it and you can kind of have this like learned approach to how to like make it happen. But I I think when I wrote, when I got out of school is when I realized like I just didn't care about the social facade of like being a composer. I don't even know what happened. I just, I wanted to get more in touch with like feeling like it was my me. It was just like my music. It was like, this was me making the sounds that they were people were going to make, you know, or the entire process of making it. Let me right. put it that way. It's yeah. like, you know, I want a artificial harmonic, you know, ha- halfway up the string at mm-hmm. the octave. And there's a difference between a composer who says that cause they know what it's going to sound like, but also pictures, you know, what the chalice is doing physically. Yeah. And you can still make it work if you're not visualizing it and you don't know what it feels like. Mm-hmm. But if you know what it feels like, then you can also incorporate it as part of the piece. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. The feeling becomes part of the piece. Yeah, right. and you can act. And there's also kind of less questions from performers if you're doing that. Yeah. Or maybe there's more questions of performers, but if you do it right, eventually they will have an aha moment. Yeah. Well, if they're good performers mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of, oh, this is what, you know, this is how he wants my body to move. Right, you know? right. This is how you want me to feel. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think, like, the, the problem I have with, like, contemporary music is I hate the feeling my body has when I have to play it. It's fine to sit through really good contemporary music's wonderful to listen to, but to play it, it's always, I just think it's so tedious. And the things I like to play like on the piano are like Beethoven, not so much anymore, but uh, you know, Ravel, uh, Debussy, you know, especially Debussy. It's, it's really fulfilling to play physically. It's like, it's like having sex or something. And so essentially to me, it's strange though that in contemporary music, there is a, a lot of music that's written that lacks that pleasure. And I think the same, like, uh, same thing with uh, like Roland Barthes talks about like Schumann. He's like, I, I don't, I can't listen to it, but I love playing it. And I think it's fair to say some music is better played than listened to. And that's actually a real problem. I think I have with writing is that I want to write music that feels good to play also that feels good to play and sounds good to hear i remember when arthur was doing like my piano sonata like he said oh i feel like i feel like my hands are getting massaged when he's playing it i was like yeah because like we both do general sews together we both smoke pot together and we we yeah like i wrote this piece it's a general sews piece you know like it feels really good and actually it's a really interesting it's a cool criteria to be like does it feel good almost like if if it feels good you should do it 
And if it doesn't feel good, don't do it. Because definitely with new music, and this is way more popular in Europe, it's like clearly people are doing stuff that doesn't feel good. I hate it when they look miserable. It's it's almost like you're not you you do not you're not taking that into account when you think about sound too much. I think that's what gets marginalized. Yeah, I think this also goes back to the if you visualize the score too much, unless it's tablature, it can also get more marginalized. If you're if you're a good old fashioned serialist dodecaphonic guy, and you're thinking about you know distances between notes and how they're ordered, mm-hmm. then I almost feel like that's the source of the problem, is that now you've really separated yourself from what's physically getting done. Well, yeah, but I I think it's just like there's like five layers of perception in like all realities, you know? And I think there's a really good like Spinoza example of, of, of the sun like touching your body. And so when you go outside and it's the sun's out, you're, the first thing you you say is oh like the sun's making me warm and that's kind of true okay like cause and effect for spinoza it's more true to say i'm a little piece of the sun meaning that like the sun's energy my energy are actually like meshed and that's really what my experience is is that i'm I'm meshing with the sun i'm having this interaction this encounter with the sun and so I think with like music, it's the same thing. It's this sort of like encounter between the performer and the score, the performer and the instrument, the audience and the sound. There's all these like layers of the encounter that are happening. And I think the illusionary layer of things or the kind of false encounter is to say mu- music is about sound and music is about time. Those are the two things. And actually, it's so common now, composers saying, music's about time. You know, it's about things unfolding in time. It's the organization of time and all this and that. And I, I'd say, no, there's, I'd say no time and no sound have to be where you really start from when, if you're really going to write good music. And I, I, the biggest problem I have when I go hear a concert is when a composer is doing something and what you're saying about the harmonic where the person who feels it and, and you compose from the knowing the feeling of it versus like just kind of passing over it. I feel like a lot of times I go to a concert and I hear a piece where the composer goes on to another thing and I feel like, why didn't you stay with the other thing? Why'd you go on? Why do why are you changing? Like what is going on? Like it's super, I mean, composition sounds so arbitrary to me. It's just like, Oh, now on a whim, they had to go this direction. Whereas I feel like going into the sound, going into the physical thing, I think is a direction that is the, the true, like, kind of like the true direction of writing, you know? And it should only be like that one feeling of that one harmonic in its like full eternity should be the only piece you ever write. You know, that's just something like Chelsea's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, you don't necessarily have to take it that far. I mean, you know... It, you should take I it feel, that far. Well, I mean, maybe you should take it that far. I think like the, the, the thing is for me is like you have to be right working at your limit. If you're not at the limit of something, you're like, it's boring. So... The thing is, what your limit is is totally not known. But I, I but I, I also feel like you think everybody's limit is this one specific parameter no, no, that they're, you're talking about. No, no, no. And some, and you know, limit and, should you know, be and someone limit. else's, and someone else's limit is how much can I mathematically organize these sounds? They, to what degree can I take that? Do it, Milton Babbitt. Like, yeah, take no, that, it, that, take that, it that's there. exactly. Yeah, yeah like, and that's why yeah. I think he's an interesting composer. Yeah, but like but, he went there. But in in reaching that limit, he's also kind of having to reject your priorities which is how does it feel i would hope so 
you know, exactly. I hope if you're going to a mathematical limit, you'd reject like my like masturbation general so's priority, yeah. you know, or like, like as an artist, you should, everybody should go to the limit to what they can do. Yeah. Okay. I agree. But it's, you know, I'm not saying there's d- one d- direction. D- you have d- to depend go. to, yeah. Yeah. Depending on what your view of the world is yeah. and, and you know, your, you know, your sensitivities as a human being, whatever that is could go in any, but do you feel that composers are taking their own vision to like a limit? I mean, I always feel it's like they're just getting started. Well, and they, they, um, they... you know, it depends on, you know, it, de- it depends on the composers. I feel like I, I feel like a lot of them do and I give them props. But then also a lot of them, you know, they're bringing their music to the marketing limit, you know, yeah, to bring it back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and that, you know, that's taking up the limit of how middle of the road can I be to get the most people to come. So what piece do you want to talk about? Part of me, if you want to talk about piano music, then that's fine. But I have, I have to say one of the pieces that you have that I really, really like mm-hmm. uh, is Secret Machines. Mm. Uh, the only thing I hate about that piece is the title. But Secret Machines sounds like a Nickelodeon cartoon from the mid-90s. Ooh. Like Ah, uh, Real Monsters. I, I might like Real Monsters better. <laughs> no, no, no. The name of that show was Ah, uh, Real Monsters. Oh, Ah, uh, Real yeah. Monsters. Uh, so yours would be Shh, Secret Machines. I have five of them. So they were written kind of in order. Actually, how the fuck did I write these pieces? Jeez, it's so not linear to think about like your, these things. Okay, well, basically, Pomplamoose, Natasha asked me to write them a piece. This is in 2008. And she's like, you write us a piece for our group? And I said, yes. And I was having a real, like, you know, struggle doing it. I think I was, like, in a really funky place, like, super down. And... I had about a month or, or two to write the like them a piece, and only way I could write this piece was by drinking like pickle juice on weekends. This is and that sounds crazy, but I was really I was very. Are you un- honestly? Are you seriously? Are, are you gonna listen? Are, are you are you fucking with me right now? No, no, and no. you're just gonna listen to this later and and like laugh I know. laugh at what a fool? No, no, no. I, that I am. Did you? Re- no, what, no. Listen, did you? Did you really? Like, gotta okay. hear this story, okay? okay. I, I, I was at a point in my like life where I was like really unhealthy. I was like smoking a lot. I was drinking a lot, really depressed. And the only way I could write anymore was if I, so if I, I, I realized there was a connection between my physical health and like my creative health, which was weird because I used to think they were so disconnected. You could just be distraught and drunk and smoking and you'd be a genius. All of a sudden I was like, I need to feel good physically to write good music. And so I would wake up on the weekends and I wouldn't eat anything and I would it was hot it was the summer and I was in the heights and I found that if I drank pickle juice it made me feel like energetic and I'd have these six hour periods on the weekends where I would drink pickle juice like butt naked and like compose (laughs) wait but you have roommates too it was in my room because it was in your room, but you would be naked drinking pickle juice and from then... like six a.m. I mean, it was early, but like it was almost like fasting. And I, I I found out later that pickle juice has like the salts good for you when you're sweating. So clearly, that's why it was like felt good to drink pickle juice. No, it was like my magic potion was like this pickle juice, and so what kind of pickles, just like super sure fine, not good pickles. It wasn't good pickles. The pickle juice. <laughs> was was okay I, I don't think this is weird i think like rocky did this and so um anyhow so i'd wake up and like and this would put me in the right like mindset to compose was just like this really kind of weird austere like naked pickle juice thing and so i wrote secret machines one 
which was very like kind of meditative and uh like slower paced and uh i always call it like the olympics like theme like it's my version of the olympics just because i don't know it just sounds like the olympics to me and that was one of them and i was like oh how nice and i, and I was like that's a movement of my of my piece i don't know what it's called yet and so then i was like i want to write other movements and then Secret Machines 2 was the second movement of this, but it still was just a second movement. And then I was like, oh, I still need more movements. And Secret Machines 3 happened when I took, I had a piano piece from a year before. And the piano piece was written by taking a, a number sequence, basically, and then translating the sequence into sounds i remember that yeah the super super really basic and the rhythmic structure of the piano piece was based off of long and short uh, durations and it followed a kind of um additive sort of pattern of long and short and then i was like what if i took this piano piece and wrote a layer on top of it i was like that'd be cool so i wrote an independent layer with the ensemble on top of it and we're still like in pickle juice mode and then that was what the piece was. And then it, it was after I wrote Secret Machines 3 that I actually called it Secret Machines because I realized the process I had been using to write all these pieces was, it was like um, secret. There was like no way I could ever explain to anybody my mental process during this period. I mean, it sounds crazy me trying to tell you. Yeah, but you. why is it a machine? Why because is it such a mechanical think, thing? Because I think, I think we, machines are not mechanistic. Uh, I think that's the, a machine is to me when you can take a flow, uh, it's a flow to me is a machine. Anything that flows is a machine and machines can be connected together. So you have this sort of, uh, you know, we were talking about the PR machine. It's a flow of, of desires and activities and people doing things. It's, okay. But so you're, you're not, you're not literally talking about a mechanical machine. No, I think you can't reduce machinery to mechanics. I think you can have the notion of a machine being, not non-mechanistic i didn't call it secret mechanics you know like i know like the associations machines are mechanical i just disagree like me and my girlfriend like make out like where we got like the scott and m sex machine going on no i don't know i mean i just think a lot of pieces are secret machines that you have these processes and all these things that you just you just connect them together they don't need to even relate to each other but also when i was writing it it was like i wanted it to feel really colorful it's weird because the tonal the tonal material was basically like white notes with an occasional like E flat, which is I think yeah I remember there was a lot lot there's lots of D minor seventh chords, but but literally I mean like root position like right. my hands clomping down on mm-hmm, the piano mm-hmm. I'm using all five notes and that's what it just naturally does right do you think that's why your harmonic material is the way it is mm-hmm. so basically your harmonic material is just based off of what you were saying before, what you feel. Not feel like, oh, my ears want to go here, but it's just what your hands do. So that's what your harmonic material is. Yeah, I mean, clearly it's just like, it's like my natural footprint on the piano is like that position.
I mean, I think yeah, I'm like completely aware of like my like habits. I don't think I, I definitely don't rely on like that habit to write a piece. But but you seem all about habits. I mean, I asked you about a piece, and you're like, "Well, I drink fucking pickle juice every day before it." I mean, that's a that's I think super habitual. I, I think uh, I don't know. I don't know the exact like Nietzsche quote. Like ti- like tiny habits are are great. Like like big habits are bad. Mm-hmm. No, but I think like tiny habits are fine. So I think it's actually really important for me when I'm writing. To find what my habit is. If you don't find that within a piece, maybe not, it's okay if you don't find that within yourself. But if you don't find that within a piece, then your piece is not going to make any sense. Kind of. Because that's what, that's what puts together cognitive mm-hmm. reasoning. Mm-hmm. You can pick up on the habit and repetition mm-hmm. or, if, or lack of repetition of what the composer is doing. Yeah, yeah. I think it's like their song for that piece. It's like where they, how they came home all the time, like in that work. I mean, not like every work needs to have that, but I feel like once I know what, once I find a certain like niche or little pattern for writing, I write, you know, so that Secret Machines was a lot of pickle juice, was a lot of nudity, it was a lot of white notes, it was really weekends, it was a weekend piece. Were you ever like a hardcore, like, even when I had met you, you were already like this, and even the Arthur piece where he's like, oh, it feels like my hands are being massaged. Before that, I'm wondering if you were ever a composer in the more traditional, you know, note sense. I uh, yeah, I mean, I have my notes. I mean, I'm like synesthetic, so I certain collections of notes will have a stronger like uh, association with a certain like color and feeling for me. So a lot of times, my notes are picked from the a feeling of like trying to make the feeling of what I'm doing consistent. So like Secret Machines three for instance the the feeling was like the color of the sound i was going for and the notes were really important like they were incredibly important that there was that aggregate of pitches because that made it feel that way it gave it a certain like volume or character i think where i don't i never have identified with is the the association of chords having to be connected in a certain way i mean i i think it's really cool sounding but i think it's also really artificial to have uh, uh, relationships between pitches. Well, it's artificial depending on what what your relationship. If you know, if notes on a page and creating relationships is simply the connection of a cognitive pattern mm-hmm. that you were picking up on in the first place, mm-hmm. then it's 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 a it's a good way to look at that cognitive pattern through that prism mm-hmm. and have it you know and have it make sense. Mm-hmm. If if you're starting out just with 
patterns and assembling them without worrying about what their cognitive effect is going to be on people when they listen to it, mm-hmm. then I think that's very artificial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then that's, that's also getting back to the argument of like, I don't know, my beef of how you can tell a piece is good by looking at the score. Mm-hmm. I think you're more talking about a layout thing, you know. I'm I'm literally talking about an intuitive feeling. I mean, you have it when you go to a, or see a great painting, or even if it's not a great painting, just like you, or good food or something. There's just a feeling of like this is good. And then there's so many levels of things not making it, but kind of like almost making it. I can't look at any of my pieces and say they're good. I mean, it's not like I know what I'm doing. You know, I think like it's really rare that I find something I think is good. But I think things just feel good when they're good. When you know it's like, this is genius. This is brilliant. It's just a feeling. God, it's so, it's almost hedonistic in a way, you know? When I you're think just so. Like, yeah, I think so. I, you, know, I, you know, I think secretly you just want to be in Rome 2,000 years ago, like That's eating, so like, like, like painting, like <laughs> painting and having like naked women feed you grapes. That sounds great. <laughs> actually, that sounds actually that sounds that sounds that does sound pretty good. That does that, you know that does sound good. No, but you're all, but it's like but you're all, you always say it's got to feel good. No, I think I mean you're basically going to do two things when you do anything in life. It's either going to be good or bad, and, and there's so much gray area. I'm not saying it's it's one or the other. It's going. It's everything's about tendencies for me. So either you have interactions with people. And you could say it was it was making me feel good or it was making me feel bad. Your art, your creates either going to be the type of thing where somebody hears it or somebody plays it and they feel that it was a positive encounter with them where they said, this makes me feel like a stronger person. Uh, this makes me love my life. This is like joyful. Or the encounter is, I fucking hate this. I hate what I'm doing. I hate myself and I want to kill myself. And I think the reason I don't like music like Radiohead is because I think it fundamentally makes everybody want to kill themselves. The thing is, sadness feels really good. And this is the problem with music, I think, is that music benefits from the pleasure of being sad or, you know, like the Nirvana line, like I miss the comfort in being sad. It's like sadness feels so good. And so I'm not talking about this good feeling that actually is, a bad thing in in the long run or, or a bad thing uh, that makes you actually want to die and you, but you like killing yourself because it feels good. I'm talking more about like I do think you can make an art that expands like your reality in a way that's like positive. So when I say something feels good and it's not it's not that superficial. But everything you do is either going to go towards radiohead suicide or towards like uh, joy. It's either you're, it's at different times. You could have like a piece that goes in 20 different directions at once, too. But fundamentally, that's why I think some stuff like Beethoven sticks around. It just, no matter what you do at the end of the day, it makes you feel really good about like the fact that you exist. And it's something that I also think Fabern does, too. I think Berg does. I think Bartok does. Um, these are really old guys. Uh, I think, I think somebody like Feldman, I think Cage affirms existence. Um, also, really old guys. Uh, I Everyone, think, everyone's dead. I think I think somebody like like Chirino does, even though you would hear it and think, "Oh God, this is so bleak," but in some way it affirms like disappearance as a real living thing. You know, I mean, I think like yeah, somebody like Fear totally is affirmative. It's like fun sounding. It like tickles you, but I don't know if my General Sos pieces were that positive, even though they felt good to play. But that also goes down to the no choice, not just like. 
You talking about Arthur's piece? No, 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 Secret no, no, no. Secret, 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 Secret Machines three. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you ever write a piece where you kind of are like, "This is my field of notes, and this is these are the pitches." A lot of the time, yeah. 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 I mean, that's I mean, essentially what it was. So it was like, "These are the notes I can use, and or these are the notes that are going to form the sound." To me, it's kind of fun because you the problem, you, you know, pick the, anything. the problem with me is when I try and do something like that, the notes I pick are always. Like I started with a good intuition, and then I'm like, "Really, is the whole fucking thing gonna be in D minor? I can't have that be a piece." Well, I always have to include a wrench for me to throw into the gears mm-hmm, at some point, mm-hmm. you know? Well, yeah, that's important. I think yeah. it's just where you're putting the wrench. See, to me, the, the wrench is is in the orchestration. Like that's where I throw the that's where I throw myself off is how I I want to orchestrate something. The pitches in some way don't get me excited once i know what they are then i'm like oh good now i can write the piece i rather think about orchestration you know i rather solve the problem of pitch and rhythm way i wish i could be a total serialist in some way like solve those problems and then just focus on something else that's more fun i don't know i mean the last piece i wrote i wrote a it was all e and i literally was like i'm just going to have all e and i can just differentiate the orchestration of e and that will be and that will be the piece. And, and the original sketch was that it would be in 3-8. Everything E on every every beat. And you just orchestrate the E's. You mean you mean you mean the key of E? Or, e. You, or you mean just the e, pitch e, of e, e the note. And so I wrote like fifteen movements in E. That's a little bit of a hackneyed way of going about things. It was a little it. it had yeah. a lot of issues, but there were some other movements that weren't like, all E. Like you could you know, I could I could quote a number of early to mid twentieth century composers who have also had that idea. Actually in, I heard a Busoni uh transcription by Schoenberg or Schoenberg transcription of a Busoni piece that sounded was all E for, for thirty seconds. Yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. It's not, it's super not original, but I was more interested in just the, the process of differentiation of orchestration that you could do. But you can, you can have a little bit more and then still have the freedom to focus on that idea. Oh, yeah. I'll never write a piece that's just that all ease again. Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of boring. I mean, it was cool sounding, but. Well, I think, I think that's good. Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah. Uh, do I sound like a dick all the time? No, I don't think so. <laughs>